This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and over the next few weeks on the podcast, you'll hear talks from All About Women, our annual festival asking questions about gender, equality and identity. Incredible thinkers at the front lines of feminism spoke about everything from comedy, wokeness and hip-hop to global feminism and the future of the movement. And this week's show features a panel which I actually introduced live on stage, so let's just go straight to that. I'm Edwina Throsby, and I'm the head of Talks and Ideas here at the Sydney Opera House. I curate this festival. And honestly, seeing you all here completely blows my mind. Do you know that this concert hall was one of the fastest-selling concert halls in Talks and Ideas history? And I mean, let's face it, we're here to listen to a bunch of politicians talk about government structure and parliamentary culture. <laughs> and it's not really one that lends itself to a catchy hook line. And yet, here we all are. And I think that the reason that we're here is, is twofold. I think that firstly, we all recognise, after what I think we can acknowledge is a, been a pretty shabby year, that the situation for, a female, for our female elected representatives is really dreadful. And a broad cultural shift heralded in by Me Too and decades of agitation by feminists and their allies has shown the situation is actually genuinely untenable. Not only are women sorely underrepresented in our parliament, and particularly at the highest levels of government, but the sexist harassment and marginalisation they endure in their workplaces would be illegal in any other workplace. And I think that the second reason that we're here is that the time feels actually really right to do something about it. There's a sense that we can take these deeply embedded, entrenched structures of sexism and of discrimination and that we might actually be able to turn things around. Together and across party lines, us women are quite powerful like that. So the conversation that's about to take place on this stage is one I think of vital national importance. Four senior political women from across the political spectrum coming together for a constructive, productive, non-partisan discussion about how we can make our parliament truly representative of the men and women of Australia. So hosting this session, you're in the very capable hands of Jacqueline Maley, who's a Fairfax journalist and columnist who's written extensively about these kind of issues and has spent a lot of time reporting in Canberra, so knows the culture herself firsthand. And she'll introduce the other amazing women that we have on this stage. Please make them all very welcome. everybody. Um, can I just say, wow, um, I've never seen the concert hall from this angle packed out like this before. It's terrifying. Um, I'm glad you're not all here to see me, but um, I'm very excited. There's so much energy in this room. It's fantastic. Um, but I do want to acknowledge that circumstances that bring us here today are not particularly positive. Um, we have had a brutal year for women in politics. We've seen a brilliant female foreign minister 
be rejected as the potential leader for her party as, and as our potential Prime Minister. We have heard reports of bullying and misogynistic abuse uh, surrounding the coup against Malcolm Turnbull last August. We've had a female senator face the kind of misogynistic abuse that's so common now that we have a fun new name for it. We call it slut-shaming. Um, she didn't face it from some goon in a pub or walking along the street. She faced it in her workplace, which is also the Australian Parliament, and she faced it from a senator, a, a colleague of hers who's an Australian senator. We've seen an ongoing and seemingly intractable argument about female representation in politics, particularly on one side of politics. And we have recently seen two very good female women, uh, two females leave politics because they wanted to spend more time with their young families. I'm thinking of Kate Ellis and Kelly O'Dwyer. And this week was really my favourite week. Um, we had <laughs> the <laughs> favourite <laughs> being a somewhat um, mixed, sort of ironic term. Um, we had the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, talk about abortion and rights to abortion as being too political to uh, be brought up in the context of an election campaign. Uh, go figure that. Um, and then on International Women's Day, he said that he did want to see women rise, uh, but let's get the quote right, but not, quote, on the basis of others doing worse. Now, he didn't specify who those others were. Um, <laughs> I'm going to guess that he means men. I don't know. Um, we can nut that out. Um, anyway, we're in a, tight, a tough spot, um, but we are here to shed light and to bring hope. I have here four of the strongest female leaders um, that we have in this country from all different parts of the spectrum. They really need no introduction, but I'll do it anyway. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce Julie first. She, of course, is, was the first female foreign minister that we had. Um, she's been in Parliament since 1998, about to leave as the outgoing member for Curtin. Um, she was deputy female, the, first, the first deputy female leader of the Liberal Party, and she held that position for 11 years. She's held a range of portfolios, and who knows what she might do next, but she might even tell us or give us a hint today. <laughs> um, Um, we have Linda Burney, who was elected the federal Labor member for Barton in 2016. She, before that, she had a proud 14-year um, career in New South Wales politics. She was the deputy leader of the opposition for a long time and held a range of portfolios in opposition and in government. Um, and um, she's a proud Wiradjuri woman. And we've been practicing that pronunciation. I hope I got it right. Um, yay. <laughs> Um, on the far end, of course, we have Sarah Hanson-Young, the Australian Green Senator for um, South Australia. When she was elected in 2007, she was the youngest woman ever elected to Parliament and the youngest person ever elected to the Senate, um, which is quite an achievement. And she's held a range of portfolios for the Greens, including the environment and um, women's issues and, and human rights. Um, and, of course, we have Julia Banks. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, so we have Julia, Julia Banks, who, uh, of course, famously um, was the only Liberal to pick up a seat in the 2016 election, um, the seat of Chisholm. Not that she got many thanks for it in the end, but we'll talk about that later. And before then, of course, she had a brilliant sort of 25-year career in the corporate world. 
Um, formality's over, let's go. Um, I actually want to start by asking you guys um, a personal question um, about what it was like, um, having overcome all the hurdles to being elected, what it was like to actually walk through the halls of parliament, the doors of parliament on that first day um, into this famously blokey workplace. Um, what was it like as a woman to do that? What were you wearing? Just joking. Um, <laughs> no. um, how did it feel? How, did, how was that subjective experience? Julie, can I start with you? A white suit. <laughs> I knew you'd remember. <laughs> I had come from the legal profession and, in fact, my first campaign was within my law firm to be elected the managing partner. And I was in a partnership of 27 and I was the only female. I stood for election as a managing partner against two male partners and I was elected. Who would have thought it'd be easier to convince lawyers <laughs> than politicians? So when I arrived at Parliament House, I was very familiar with a male-dominated environment. I remember very well meeting the Member of Parliament in the office over the passage from me, and that was Bruce Baird. And we became friends then, and I believe we'll be lifelong friends. Mm. So it has a very positive um, memory for me in that sense. But it was also at a time when there were very few women in Cabinet. This is 20 years ago. Mm. There are still very few women in Cabinet. And I was determined not to be defined by my gender. I didn't want to be seen through the prism of she's the first female member for Curtin. I wanted to be um, accepted for my hard work, my integrity, my um, powers of representation and advocacy. And that was what I sought to do. But I was, of course, very conscious of the fact that women in leadership roles were still a novelty. Mm. For in fact, at that time, whilst there were a couple of female, I can't quite recall, I remember Jocelyn Newman was a cabinet minister, but there were certainly no women in the leadership team. Sarah, you were very young. Um, what was it like for you? It must have been extra intimidating. You're a baby. <laughs> I think, um, thinking back now, I was probably quite naive about it all. Mm. Um, I was elected, uh, and on that campaign trail, uh, my daughter was born. So, um, not something I'd suggest, by the way. If you're going to run for parliament, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, um, space it out a little bit. But um, actually, in a way, it gave me a constant grounding focus. So, even though it was quite intimidating, and I remember when I first walked in, and I remember what I was wearing as well, Julie. Um, and it was a suit, and I worked out very quickly, what the hell am I doing dressing like a middle-aged man? <laughs> this was not, you know, I walked in there thinking I had to kind of be something that I wasn't. Mm. And I realized that actually I just needed to be myself. Mm. Um, and that meant dressing like a 25, 26-year-old, not dressing like a middle-aged man. And, yep, I had a baby on my hip. And she's just turned 12, by the way. Very proud of her. Um, and together we have taken this journey. And I think when I... Uh, I think about, you know, the, the, the representation of women in politics. We need women of all ages and demographics and uh, experiences. Um, 
but I would urge young women in particular because you can do it. Cora and I have been on this journey for 12 years and we're still, we're running for re-election, we're going strong and I wouldn't, do it, if you want to do it, do it. <laughs> Um, Linda, you entered the bear pit. Um, that was is. your first experience of politics and um, it's got a, a somewhat mixed reputation as a, uh, as a nice place for women. What was it like? Um, I'll tell you about that in a moment, but can I join with Rhoda Roberts in recognising country and thank Aunt for her welcome here today. And I, uh, I recognise the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, I started out in politics, everyone, in 2003. I was... Uh, very familiar, like Julie, with the political process. There was nothing, um, nothing magic about it. There was nothing mysterious about it because I'd had a job prior to going into politics um, as head of a non-government organisation, which required me to meet with uh, politicians and ministers of the day on a monthly basis. And I soon realised that I was just just as smart as they were and probably could do that job. And what do you know? <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> what really struck me is a few things, that there were, I think, 16 or 17 uh, Labor people elected in the 2003 election, and one of them was one Christina Keneally. How, and we had no idea, of course, that Christina would go on to do what she's done. But the overwhelming sense for me was a bit like Julie. I didn't want to be defined by my Aboriginality. The three motivating factors for me going to Parliament were, in not any order, my Aboriginality, the fact that I was a woman, and that my entire life had been around the pursuit of social justice. Um, and we'd shared a board position together. I don't know if we you did. remember it. I also remember. At SPS for remember about we, six we months. We also did the Constitutional Convention we together. We did too, yes. Yeah. Um, there you go. And um, what I remember, one. everyone, is coming down the elevator walking into the foyer of the New South Wales Parliament to see a massive picture of Captain Cook landing. Wow. Landing. Wow. <laughs> mm, right. And I'm pleased <laughs> to say now that on leaving that Parliament, uh, the Aboriginal and the Torres Strait Islander flag fly in both chambers and the day is begun by acknowledgement of country. Yeah. Symbolic but important. Wow. Julie, you did it much more recently and you had a, a long career and, and, you know, what was Parliament like work, walking in as a sort of former layperson? Well, yeah, or an outsider, yeah, as some other yeah. one's called. Um, so I had a career in, um, in business, as, as you say, Jack, and uh, um, it wasn't like it was smooth sailing in business mm. from a women's perspective, particularly as I, I um, climbed the ranks and it's, it's, it so happened that... Um, for example, um, when I was pregnant with my second child, I um, went into premature labour and uh, I was mm. sort of thought, oh, that's a contract, no, that must be a Braxton Hicks, and then it happened again. I looked around the board table and they were all blokes. <laughs> and I thought, no, nah, I'm not going to tell any one of these guys. I just sort of hide your labour. Yeah. And then I sort of snuck out, rang my doctor, said, oh, it's probably nothing to that. They said, Julia, I'll see you at the Royal Women's in five minutes. So. I um, got in a taxi, went to the hospital, and Are you on your own. I was on my own, yeah. And uh, my husband overseas, <laughs> working couples. Um, and um, and I remember, so it it all settled down, it all stopped, sort of thing. And so I thought I'd better ring 
obviously the director yeah, yeah. you know to say i can't first, first order of priority yeah, yeah. yeah and i said blah blah you know early labor you know it's all stopped now it's all okay yeah yeah okay julia but will you be in tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> and i said it depends if i have a baby <laughs> <laughs> so, so um that was that was sort of the so that you know i had my that was your toughening long up. time yeah, ago yeah. yeah and uh but i've seen the corporate world over the years like that was the days of you know 12 months unpaid maternity leave and all those sorts of things and and so there have been those roadblocks mm. uh from a woman's perspective mm. so but the the corporate world and the business world has certainly changed because i left that corporate world where targets have become a thing um and big companies are increasingly putting women in leadership positions and um and then i joined the world of politics and i guess my first experience after i was preselected was um um there was a, an event going on in in my electorate and the uh liberal party person who was organizing it said well i'm going to be speaking and michael kroger will be speaking and blah blah will be speaking i said what when am i on the preselected candidate don't i get a gig here and he said oh don't worry darling don't you worry about that darling we'll give you the raffle okay <laughs> hey, the barrel girl Which is an honoured role. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Raffle girl. So, yeah, so winning the... I mean, no-one was really interested in Chisholm from the Liberal Party's perspective because it was the... Um, it was a labor held seat. Mm. Um, a labor held seat. And it was, as you mentioned, the only seat mm. we won in, in the election. And... Um, I have to say but for the assistance of Julie Bishop and Kelly O'Dwyer I don't think we would have won that seat. Mm. Um but nonetheless um we won it and my first entry into um uh the Liberal Party room I just felt that it was like and I mentioned this the other day it was sort of like the 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 um the business world had gone on this future journey but mm. the liberal party had stopped in time and i and over time i i you know in my 3 years i felt like it was some sort of hybrid tv show between mad men and house of cards mm. <laughs> <laughs> so entertaining and no one looks like john drake <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, entertaining to watch on Netflix but maybe not so much um, to work <laughs> yeah. in as a workplace. Yeah. Um once okay, so you've you've been elected to parliament, you're in you've you've gained power. You're in a position of power. Um and you guys have all had differing positions of power in in government and opposition and um I want to ask you now what it's like when you get there. Once you've arrived, um is do you automatically ascend to a position of total equality? Julie, I want to start with you because you've sat around the most powerful table in the country that you sat around the cabinet table and you have alluded before to being mansplained to um in that room what's it like i think the phrase i use is gender deafness i was <laughs> in a cabinet of 19 and i was the only woman this was in 2013 and i would have an experience during these cabinet meetings where people would be talking and then i would intervene to say something and there would be silence and then they'd just keep on talking and then somebody would say 
precisely what I'd said. Mm. And all the guys would say, gee, that's a great idea, why don't we do that? And then I'd think, but didn't <laughs> I say that? And it was as if they hadn't heard me. And it wasn't until more women were appointed to Cabinet where we would deliberately say, no, Julie just said that, or Kelly came up with that idea, that they would actually listen and acknowledge. That's why it is so important to have a diversity of views around the decision-making forums. This is a global issue, and Australia could lead the way in this regard, mm. whether it's the Cabinet, whether it's the Security Council, whether it's um, the boards of the major companies. Men and women bring different perspectives, different life experiences. They have different leadership styles. You don't want one or the other. They complement each other. But you need a balance of diverse... You need diversity more generally, but you need diverse gender views. They describe women's leadership style as more transformational. Women are very good at building teams, good at um, empathy, understanding the needs of individuals, being sensitive to their needs. Men are far more transactional, mm. far more adversarial, not interested in the in individual, but they'll hold the team to account. Now, I'm not saying one style is better than another or I'm trying not to stereotype too much, but it is the different leadership styles that lead to better outcomes. If you're a company, the evidence is there. Um, better bottom line, higher morale, greater productivity. And I think in politics, the more diverse the views, the better the policy development, the better the outcome, the better for the country. I want to talk about political culture later. And <laughs> just on a personal level, before you had your Kelly O'Dwyer's or, you know, your backup, your sisters in Cabinet, was that lonely for you? In a way, yes. I'd experienced it before many years before in law, as I said, I was the only female partner in a 27-firm partnership. But it was politics more generally. It's not just being the only woman in Cabinet. Parliament House is not a place for uh, making deep friendships, which is why I mentioned that I actually did make a friend in politics. <laughs> I didn't have to buy a dog. And yet it can be a lonely place. You keep very much to yourself as a woman. Mm -hmm. it's, you don't go out drinking with the boys. We well, can, but it's, it's just not the same camaraderie. And yet when I was a deputy leader... I would organise drinks and the other women would, you know, get the women together because we just needed to almost connect with each other informally mm. because it can be a rather isolating experience. And I don't know whether the mm. other women on the panel felt that way, but it wasn't just being the only woman. It was, it was broader than that. Parliament House is not a family-friendly place. It's not a place for making deep connections more generally. Mm. That's been my experience. Just go quickly around the rest of the panel, your experiences of um, any inequality or any, um, you know, once you actually gained power, Sarah, once you're actually in Parliament. Look, I think um, a number of the examples that Julie's used, uh, and that example of um, when you put forward an idea and three people after some bloke does and all of a sudden, bingo, it's taken up. Um, I think that is something that um, many women um, in 
levels of negotiation and debate um, often are confronted with. Uh, I think the idea of being very conscious about it and calling it at the time is important because afterwards they've already forgotten. They've totally forgotten about it. So we have to kind of use the mechanisms we have to um, uh, restate that our contribution is mm. worthwhile, that it is, um, that we do bring something different. You know, being in the Senate, I guess, one of the things, um, as opposed to on the House of Reps, perhaps, uh, we spend a lot of time on committees. And so those groups are even smaller. And so um, you can have those conversations a bit easier, perhaps. Mm. And we travel a lot around the country mm. with each other. So there's kind of, uh, you get to work out pretty quickly who to avoid, yep. who, to be on a, who, who you want to be on a committee with and who you avoid um, across the different parties. Um, but also uh, there is a, a sense very much of um, the behaviour in the chamber so when I first started, the behaviour in the chamber was a lot better. Wow, okay. Uh, and it was the behaviour outside, in the corridors and uh, in people's offices that was confronting. Mm. And over the years, the, the behaviour in the chamber has gotten worse. Mm. Mm. And when a, a lot of that kind of rose to, um, uh, I guess, public prominence last year, um, that had been the culmination of things getting worse. Mm. Um, and I frankly, you know, this absolute rubbish from the Prime Minister uh, two days ago about, you know, don't get ahead of yourselves, ladies, uh, you know, um, watch out, <laughs> you know, the boys will let you have, you, you can be equal, just not equal to us. Um, uh, but that kind of attitude um, and the kind of idea that bullying is simply part, and that kind of rough and tumble nature is simply part of politics. Mm. I think what people are missing is that the public want all of us to behave better. Yes. They want all of us to do better. <laughs> and so, if we started treating women a bit, a bit better in politics, everybody would be treated a bit better in politics, and the public might actually think politicians are worth listening to again. Mm. And it's. It is actually in the bloke's interest for us to deal with this properly and to, to, to cut out the, you know, the, the, the rubbish that is just kind of soaking up time. Mm. Uh, it is, it, it's the, the attitude in the chamber, the kind of, uh, um, the, the fury that you see on the news shows, that's all show. And I think people are churning off and, you know, we cop at the worst as women because uh, it is, there is a specific gendered nature to it. Yeah. Let me be very clear about that. There yeah. is a very specific gendered nature yeah. to the bullying yeah. and, the, um, and, and the combat mm. that you get uh, as a woman in politics. Um, and that needs to be called out. Mm. Um, but it's not that we're just not, you know, tough enough or you can't roll with the punches, as I said to you, Julia. Who was that? That... Idiot, Craig Kelly. <laughs> I'm not naming names. Um, <laughs> I think. I think. We, uh, it, we, actually, we can, we can it would be Kelly, much better it? if we all just um, behaved a bit better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to talk. Um, I want to pivot to uh, biology 
and in particular our wombs. Let's just get right down to business. Because um, that is often used against us. It's often used, um, our, you know, women's biology is often used as a reason why we're fundamentally unsuited to taking power. John Howard, um, I think, speaking at the Press Cup, I think last year, said that um, you know, female re equal female representation in Parliament was going to be difficult to get to because I think he said that... Women um, have to focus on their caring roles. Yeah, so that women's caring roles would mean that they were naturally... Um, they were going to be limited in what they could do. Um, he was lambasted at the time, but wasn't he just kind of calling it... Like, wasn't he just... Wasn't he right? I mean, are we really honest about the fact that it is extremely difficult to juggle a political career with caring for a family and particularly young children? And Sarah, I mean, you, 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 raised, you raised a child as you were doing your political yeah. career. I mean, how was that? I mean, what it's do you extreme, say to that argument? Don't get me wrong, it's extremely difficult. Um, but it's extremely difficult for every working mum out there. Exactly. Be honest. And, uh, you know, politicians... <laughs> We, we're just a reflection of the rest of the community. And I think we've, we've got to get serious about the caring perception and the caring roles in this country. If we really want equality, we need um, men in our lives uh, and in our children's life to do more. And we need uh, their, their workplaces to also embrace and celebrate and encourage that as well. Um, it's no surprise that when people talk about the gender pay gap, I'm not surprised at all because the sectors that women primarily go into where those gaps are much, much bigger, um, they're roles that allow some flexibility. Now, I can tell you, if, um, if we had more men in the caring profession, wages would be up, <laughs> conditions would be better, and, uh, you know, the, the at-home care arrangements, whether you're caring for a child or caring for your elderly parents, mm. um, would be seen as something that we should get a tax rebate or an incentive for. That's what would be on the table. Um, how about we pay superannuation for mums who are caring for kids and elderly parents at home? That's what I think. Julie, <laughs> you... What? I've got something to say. I was about to say, um, Sarah has no doubt read the report of the government's a workplace Gender Equality Agency that was released last Friday. And this report reflects the progress being made by our major companies across the private sector in terms of gender equality. And what people want, in my understanding, is equality of opportunity. And until we change attitudes towards what is a traditional family unit mm. or what is a traditional caring role, we will continue to see extraordinarily slow progress, as evidenced by this report, which showed that if we wanted to see parity, say, in terms of the numbers who were in senior leadership positions, including CEO position, in Australia's major companies, on current projections, it will take until well into the 22nd century. <laughs> that is not in my lifetime, that is not in the next generation's lifetime. Is that what Australia is capable of achieving? And we're talking about an area in the private sector, in business, where we know that having more women in leadership positions, in management positions, is not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. So, thank you. So why, 
Um, so we need to change attitudes. As Sarah said, yes, it's hard, but Parliament House, for example, sits in Canberra mm. 20, 25 weeks a year. And if you come from Western Australia or Northern Queensland or wherever, it takes you quite some time to get there. You just can't pop in for the day and pop home again. Also, it's, it's extraordinary that in this day and age, we have to have physical voting. You have to physically be present yeah, in order to vote. Yeah. I, mean, I was in Ukraine years ago. They have electronic voting yeah. in Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> and we can't seem to manage it in Australia. We don't use teleconferencing or um, video conferencing in any way. You physically have to be there. Mm -hmm. And I think these are the, kind of, the kinds of attitudes that have to change. And men and women have to drive this change. I want to ask particularly the conservative um, politicians, so Julie and Julia, there is um, a lack of female representation in westernised democracies all around the world, but it's worse in conservative party parties, we know this, and that's the case in Australia. There are people who say that conservative politics is fundamentally just, you know, there's a structural flaw there which means they'll never achieve gender parity because conservative politics is based on a conception of the family unit that is very traditional. Um, and putting more women into position of power, positions of power means upturning that. What, what do you say to that? Well, in fact, the Liberal Party was founded by Robert Menzies, who said, I call it the Liberal Party because we want to be progressive, we want to be experimental, we're not reactionary, we're not a socialist <laughs> in but we are a progressive party. John Howard described it as the broad church. Mm. You have a moderate wing, you have a conservative wing. And I'm not talking about religious conservatism. We're talking about political conservatism. And I think it's very misleading for mm. some to try and impose on the Liberal Party that we're a religious, moral conservative party. We're political conservatives, we are uh, political liberals, and we make up the broad church. Now, as Menzies said, we are progressive. So you look at the traditional family unit today and it should be about equality of sharing responsibilities and caring responsibilities. It can be single mums. It can be two men raising children. The traditional family unit has moved on. As long as, and this is what conservatism really means, we hold dear the institutions, the traditions and values, but the institution of the family doesn't mean there is no change in the definition. It's just that the definition is much broader. It's the same as the institution of marriage. I, as a Liberal, can support same-sex marriage because the institution is stronger if it's more inclusive. So that's what I think the uh, Liberal Party should be standing for. Julia, do you think that um, it's anathema to, to conservative values to have more women in positions of power? Yeah, well, uh, look, first, I've, I think I've made it pretty clear that I've moved on from the Liberal Party. Um, <laughs> we, we know. <laughs> do, you, do you still identify as a political conservative or a smaller Liberal? I am, you? By the way, Thanks, I'm very Mac. disappointed that you have. I just want to put that on the <laughs> Um, thanks, Mac, in the sensible centre, without a doubt. And uh, I think what's happened is the right-wing conservative arm of the Liberal Party have become reactionary mm. in that sense. So 
if you don't, um, and, and I mean, Scott Morrison himself has said that John Howard is his mentor. Yep. And you just, as you just quoted, John Howard said only, you know, a couple of years, a couple of years ago, um, that we will never get 50-50 representation in our parliament because women have to focus on their caring responsibilities. He said so they would always have limited capacity. Yes, yes. so you've got leadership well, in the Liberal Party true. saying, looking at, at women through this prism of the traditional picket mm. fence, whereas the world has moved on and, uh, and, uh, you know, in, and women are working and they... Um, they do, you know, that, that traditional family model, which is, I do believe, in the, in the, lib, in the right-wing conservative faction of the Liberal Party, or conservative arm of the Liberal Party, is, is really cemented by these, these views that are, are very strongly held by many of yeah. the blokes in the party. I, and, I, sorry, yeah. I, was, I was actually going to say, Julia, that yeah. th there's a, a recent report by the World Economic Forum on global, the Global Gender Gap Report, and it looks at the gender gap in every facet of society. And the greatest gender gap at 77%, 0% being parity, is in political representation worldwide. Mm. That is the, uh, the worst mm. um, element yeah. of gender parity in the world. It's in political representation. Yeah. So you, Australia, a, a highly sophisticated, first world developed country, um, highly regarded around the world, should be able to lead the way mm. in aiming for greater representation. female representation in our parliament. And I, think well, I do think there's a party that's doing that. And, and Linda indeed, goes again, and indeed, boasting about the, you know, the Labor Party quota system. Well, and um, I, I think the quota system, I mean, we, that I, is the only thing that can work. So you let's, okay. It's the only thing that can work. I, I think we know Julie's in favour of quotas, and by quotas, I, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm talking about hard quotas like the Labor Party has, mm. where there's actually a consequence if you don't meet your mm. target, because, of course, the, the Liberal Party does have a target. It's yeah. just not looking like it's going to get there anytime soon. I think the... Um, um, I, and I do want to... Sorry, go ahead. Linda, go, and then I'll... Um, I think that the idea that somehow uh, targets uh, came about easily is not true. I remember being at the 1994 Labor Party National Conference and the wonderful Emily's List and Joan Kerner were there and uh, we got, I think, the 30, 30%... Uh, then progressively it's gone up, and after the next election, we will be 50% um, on the basis that you win all the seats. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. That's oh. true. But, um, but the, the, but I've always had a view that targets are important. I know that there are other views that exist, and I respect those views. But a target. Uh, or a CPI, it doesn't matter whether it's in your employment contract or whether it's in female representation in various parts of society, including the parliament. It does give you something to aim for. Mm. And what's really important, and I think everyone would agree with, with this, that we're all from different political persuasions, different political parties, with different structures and different ways of, of, um, of getting to um, that representation. 
But at the end of the day, parliaments, and everyone would agree with this, parliaments should reflect the people that we're representing. Absolutely. And it doesn't. It just doesn't. Um, Julie, you want and to say the something? The final point I'll make, sorry, is that what's really helpful for uh, the party that I come from, the Labor Party, is that we have not only amazing women in leadership positions, but also men in leadership positions that are highly supportive of affirmative action. That's important. Julie. I have said on a number of occasions that I don't believe in mandatory quotas but I believe firmly in targets because I've seen the perverse outcome of a mandatory quota but I've also seen the positive outcome of a target. The example is the Turnbull Cabinet in 2015 decided on a 50% target for the government boards and committees and councils. Mm -hmm. There are about 5,000 positions uh, where the federal government appoint people to these boards and the male-female ratio was not good. And so we set a target of 50%. And what it meant is ministers were held accountable for the names that they put forward for consideration by cabinet. So if you had the you know, National Library Committee or something and they turned up with four men on the list, they would be asked to go away and come back with a list that reflected 50-50. And what it meant is that you just had to work a little harder, dig a little deeper. The, woman, the women were there, the pool of talent was there, but often women don't put themselves forward in the same way, or they are um, not as confident about their ability to do the job, or they don't think they're as qualified, when of course they are. And so over time, this accountability and transparency led to a significant increase uh, when I left Cabinet, I think it was about 44%. My department was, had hit 50%. And so the target worked. And I think that in that way, people were, were looking for the right women to fill the job. So as I opposed guess, to having I, a quota that said, well, you've just got to stick a woman in there because I, the quota said... I, but I guess course, what a lot of people... I, I would just say, I guess, I guess what a lot of people don't understand is if a Liberal government can do that and do it very quickly, why can't it do it for its own party? Exactly, exactly. exactly. I mean, what, what, but why? I mean, Well, that's, that's my well, point. Well, you did that's... hear the Prime Minister the other day. Is, it, is, is <laughs> that the reason? I mean... In, in, in your opinion, Julie, is that, is that the reason? That, is it because you don't have a, a, a man or a person in power who actually will go out and be like, find me a woman? Well, that's why I have become the patron of a group in Western Australia called Emergent Women, and we are identifying young women in business, in community work, NGOs, um, professionals, identifying young women who are interested in politics and women between 25 and 40, because it takes time to um, get women to think, am I qualified yeah. for this? Do I want to do this? How can I arrange my family life, my professional life and the like? And we started it last year. As at last count, there were 60 young women who've joined this emergent women group. I haven't asked them to become members of the Liberal Party because for work reasons and other reasons, it's, they don't want to or they may not want to. But over time, um, I will help mentor them so that they have an understanding of what's involved and encourage them, yes, you can do it, yes, you can make a contribution, because I happen to believe entering public office is one of the highest callings mm -hmm. and that if you can 
contribute your efforts and energies and enthusiasm and ideas to the betterment of your community, your state, your country, then that's one of the greatest contributions you can make. Mm. So I want to see more women uh, in the it's a, parliament. It's a pipeline. But we, yeah, it's very yeah. much well, a pool of women yeah. who be, can become a pipeline. Not all of them I, will want to go into The pipeline can get blocked. Yeah. Once you face the Liberal pre-selected, yeah. it can I get just, blocked. Can I just point out, though, that one of the ridiculous arguments about this, you couldn't, you, you know, that the Liberal Party couldn't possibly have a quota is there are... You can't have a quota for women, apparently, but there is a quota, of course, for in the coalition for the National Party. The only you reason Barnaby that. Joyce... <laughs> the only reason Barnaby well, Joyce was the Deputy to. Prime Minister is because there was a quota. I mean, I, I, so it's good enough for Barnaby, but not good enough for Joyce. I, I do think... I do think that it's really important to... Um, I mean, you've got a group of four pretty fabulous women speaking to you this afternoon. I'm glad you didn't stop it, pretty. <laughs> <laughs> pretty fabulous, I said. But I think the thing to also understand that uh, political life is not for everybody. Mm, sure. Um, and it is very demanding, particularly if you're a woman, and particularly, it is true um, if you've if you've um, got a young family. That's and the that truth. Goes for the men too. And that, but, it, but that doesn't yeah. apply to them as much. No, but mm. you and I have both had examples in our respective parties of men with young children. Uh, they sure. both happen to come from Western Australia. Australia. And yeah. the geographic distance yeah. does... Who actually that. did quit uh, and spend more time with their family. I think it's, real. The, it's yeah. a rough... It, it, is, it is the adversarial nature of politics that um, I, I think is a challenge. And you have to be a particular person to be able to okay. understand Let's that, to be able to deal with it, and to, also, and, and to also retain your feminist inner self in that context. And I, Julia Gillard used to talk about that a lot, that she, um, you know, that she just sort of had an armour, I suppose, and she, she relied on her own... She had a lot of self-reliance. I, I want to go to that, though. Um, do women just need to harden up because politics no. is an adversarial no. and aggressive and hostile environment, or does politics need to change? I think well, that I, is such well, an insulting term. Yeah, so, yeah. so, yeah. so do I. I mean, the thing um, that you would expect from... I think it's what we're all saying, is uh, decent behaviour, mm. uh, treating each other well and respectfully, because, um, as Julie sa said, you know, being, being elected is an enormous responsibility. You are carrying the aspirations of tens of thousands of people into that place. And there is, there is such honour in that. I know that that sounds mm. trite, but it is true. And it's an enormous responsibility. Mm. Um, but I do think that it is really crucial uh, that women act collectively in that environment. Mm. And that is the power of women in that environment. Even I, I, think, I think, too, that... Um, I mean, I do think politicians go on a lot about themselves and how bad <laughs> life is in Canberra and how bad life is as, as a politician because there are millions of women out there 
True. who work full-time in very demanding jobs. They're away from home and, and their, their jobs can be from, you know, the senior executive role who travels a lot to, to shift workers, doctors, mm. nurses, the professionals. Um, there are all those, all those people do have that. I think the problem in our, in our body politic is that we don't have equal representation across the board mm. um, and that we have, you know, and we're hopefully, after the next election, going to have a number of independents in that sensible centre. Yeah. <laughs> because... <laughs> and I'm not I, speaking I, of anyone I, in particular. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, but I do, I do believe that... You know, numbers is not the answer to everything. It's about the culture. And when you get that equal representation, you change the culture of the place. It's not the panacea. And, and it more will, women will yeah, be attracted. It will, it will, it will create... that The outcomes will be a creation. I, I, I have... Julie Bishop, no, no, Julie Bishop wants to say something. To, I'm yeah. dying to pick up on that point. <laughs> no, Don't stand in her way. <laughs> I'm dying to pick up on that point. Yeah. Because we've talked about Parliament being adversarial. Yes, it is, and it's ingrained in the system, the Westminster system, where yeah. you have a formal executive government and you have a formal opposition, unlike the United States, for example. So the job of the opposition is to hold the government to account, and the opposition wants to take the government out so that they can get into government and implement their policies, and the government wants to get rid of the opposition so that they can continue to govern. The culture of the place has been developed by men because it was an all-male parliament for so many years. Yeah. So the attitudes and the culture, the conventions, the precedents have been set when men mm. were in control of the parliament. And Question Time is a great example. Question Time is all this theatre. And as a minister or as a shadow minister, you were expected to take your opponent down. Mm. You're expected to have a hit on them so that they would be uh, politically destroyed and you were judged on your ability to be a warrior. Now, I was no angel. I've been part of all of that. But I soon learned, when I became foreign minister in particular, that if you're trying to be a man, it is a waste of a woman. Mm. <laughs> and, and I, I want to... I, I do... We're going to have to go to we're going to have to go to questions soon, and I, there's a few things that I want to cover off on first. Um, we've had a bullying uh, culture for a while now in in Parliament. Um, I think I can sort of trace it back to the to Julia Gillard's prime ministership. She faced a lot of misogynistic abuse. Um, now, Julie, when she gave her famous misogyny speech um, against Tony Abbott. You were his loyal deputy and you stood up um, after that speech and you defended him and you said that it was wrong of Julia Gillard to call him a misogynist and that he should, uh, she should apologise to him. Um, have, you soft have you changed your views about Tony Abbott since then? <laughs> let, let, me put it, let me put it in context. The debate was about the Labor Party putting Peter Slipper yes. in yep. as the speaker. And I think Julia would admit that that was perhaps a misjudgment. And Peter Slipper as speaker was the debate. And she quite skillfully deflected yes. what should have been a huge political uh, disadvantage and damaged Labor almost irreparably. She skillfully turned it back on us by attacking Tony Abbott. Mm. And I, as the deputy, of course, had a role to play to defend the leader, which I did. You did your job. Yeah. I did my job. And so it was, a, it was a political play, but her speech went viral. 
and the issue at hand, which was the utterly inappropriate appointment of someone from our side to the Speaker's role in circumstances where it would mean that she could stay in government as opposed to face an election, um, it was, you know, pretty cynical politics. Okay, but to answer the question... <laughs> um, <laughs> um, let me put it another way. Do you think Tony Abbott was a good champion for women as Prime Minister and, <laughs> and as Minister for Women, which he was? He was the Minister for Women. Yes, he appointed himself as a... <laughs> Do you think he was a good Minister for Women? <laughs> My personal view was that it would have been preferable for a female cabinet minister <laughs> to be the minister for women. Um, just quickly, because we, we are going to go to questions soon, I want to um, ask your, all of your views on um, Scott Morrison's formulation. And this is a serious question because he said just, you know, the other day that, that he wanted to see women rise but not at the expense of others. Now, that's a very... It's laughable but it's also serious. It's deeply serious because it shows a binary point of view, I would say, um, that, you know, one person can succeed only at this, the um, expense of another. And it also, to me, is a tacit um, admission that men have risen at the expense of women. Um, Sarah, what, what's your view on that? Uh, look, I think it says everything about Scott Morrison, actually. Um, <laughs> and either who the hell is briefing this guy, um, or um, perhaps he should stick to the script, one or the other. Um, frankly, uh, I, I think it's quite alarming, actually, that we on International Women's Day, the Prime Minister, who is leading a party which is engulfed in a crisis of how they engage with women in their own party and the voters, would go out and say this and not even think twice about the message that that was sending. Um, uh, the, the, biggest pro the biggest problem I think I have with it is the idea that somehow we can have equality, but just not real equality. Mm. That's what he was saying. Mm. Equality is good for everybody. It's, of course, it's good for, uh, you know, as women, we need to advance. But it is good for everybody. And anyone who thinks differently um, is not committed to the idea that men and women should be treated equally across the board. And that should never be represented by a Prime Minister in 2019. Julie, um, you can be frank now. What do, you, what do you think? I can be frank. Well, Jacqueline, I think the other two should get it off their chest first. All right. <laughs> I have... I, Linda? I have to say that um, I have always felt very respected, very listened to, um, and my views sought by um, the members of the Labor Party, the party I represent. Mm. I have not felt uh, bullying or um, the sorts of things that perhaps some other, uh, some other my uh, pan fellow panellists might have experienced. And I think in terms of the Prime Minister's comments on um, International Women's Day, uh, completely misguided, 
and uh, an own goal. It's almost as good as, as, as a replica of the endeavour sailing around Australia as an act of reconciliation. <laughs> Look, um, when I heard that, I thought two things. Um, the first thing was um, I thought it, it just re replicated everything everyone's telling me, which is they're fed up with the combative politics of the major parties. I, the second thing I thought was, thank God I've left. Actually, three things, and then I did something. I just thought about my other fellow three independent, sensible centre women, and what I did was I went for a walk and uh, played my favourite song of the moment, which is Eurythmic Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves. Julie. <laughs> Jack, it would be very churlish of me to complain about my treatment in the Liberal Party because I was the first woman to be elected to the seat of Curtin, which is a very strong Liberal seat in Western Australia. It would be churlish of me not to acknowledge that I was elected by my colleagues as the deputy leader of the party year after year in opposition and in government. And I had 11 years as the deputy of the Liberal Party. And then what was the most challenging and rewarding and fulfilling career opportunity I think any parliamentarian could have was to be Australia's foreign minister. And I was so proud of the fact that I was the first female foreign minister in our country's history. And when Maurice Payne as defence minister and I as foreign minister would turn up at these two plus two meetings, these are meetings that you have a piece of diplomatic architecture where the foreign minister and the defence minister of countries meet. And when two women from Australia would come to these meetings, in our very senior roles as foreign minister and defence minister, it invariably caused an enormous amount of comment because people would say, we thought Australia had a blokey culture. This mm. is extraordinary to see two women in these roles. And so symbolism and numbers do matter. It changed people's perception of us. So I believe that it's about changing attitudes. If we really believe in equality of opportunity and ensuring that uh, we can embrace uh, more women in all roles, then Australia will be better for it. No nation will reach its potential unless and until it fully engages with the skills and ideas and energy and talents of the 50% of its population that is female. Exactly. Um, and do you want to do you want to comment specifically on do you want to comment specifically on Scott Morrison's? <laughs> the Prime Minister was asked about his comments yesterday, and he explained what he meant. <sighs> She's such a diplomat. <laughs> I can be a little bit more honest about that. I yeah. mean, Scott Morrison has said himself that John Howard is his mentor. Um, I think that statement came from his heart. <laughs> Make of that while you will. Um, okay, we are going to turn over to audience questions now, and everyone can ask the questions that I neglected to. Um, but I will need the lights up. So um, a lot of you. we will try to get wow. through everyone. Wow. <laughs> Watch out, ladies. This is the Q&A part. Um, 
Do we have anyone? Okay, let's go over here to um, microphone number two. Hello, um, this is a question for Julie Bishop. I just wanted to know what your plans are post-politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had 20 years in a legal career. I've now had 20 years in a political career. And I think I need another 20 years in a third fulfilling career. <laughs> there are many issues that I would like to be involved with. Um, the private sector, um, philanthropic causes, and I hope to continue to make a contribution. A number of people have been speculating about ambassadorial roles. Well, I'm already an ambassador of Ocean Respect Racing, which put together the first professional all-female crew to do the Sydney to Hobart. <laughs> I think they might be here. I think, I think there's some of them Go girls. And then secondly, I'm the ambassador for ovarian cancer research which is an insidious cancer. It kills about 1,000 women each year in Australia. The survival rate is about 45%, whereas with breast cancer, for example, it's about 95%. Mm. There is no early detection test and there is no cure. So I want to spend time assisting the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation. Julie, um can you tell us, is your, you've got your next job lined up though, don't you? My next job? It's, you're putting it in the singular. There are so many things I want to do. <laughs> She's too cluey for us. Um, um, we'll go over here to microphone number one. This lady. Hi, it's Eva Cox. Oh, it's Eva Cox. <laughs> Hi, Eva. Uh, Eva Cox. Oh, wow. My question, as you might guess, is probably fairly broad. It's all very well talking about getting more women into Parliament, but how do we ensure that you actually stick to a feminist agenda and don't get taken over by the blokes' jokes? <laughs> at, at least enough of you to make, make a serious difference. It would be hard to assume you're all going to be feminists. <laughs> OK, so... Perhaps I could um, put forward this perspective. When I became foreign minister, the first woman to hold the position in our history, I embraced gender equality and gender equity in our foreign aid program and focused on the Pacific, which is where the majority of our aid is invested, and ensured that every dollar we spent was seen through the lens of what it would do for women and children. And we also ensured that our policies drove economic empowerment of women, uh, leadership empowerment of women, and focused on eradicating sexual and gender-based violence against women. No country is immune, but it is prevalent in the Pacific. So we embedded female empowerment and gender equality in the foreign aid policy. So it can be done. And you, you go ahead. I mean, do other women feel that you uh, have a duty to, um, uh, yeah? I, I think I, 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 I know one way we could have done that um, and stuck to a feminist agenda, and that would have been to elect Julie Bishop as our next <laughs> prime minister. <laughs> I think it's actually very important for us as women in Parliament 
uh, to look at each decision that we make uh, with a view of whether we're advancing um, the feminist agenda. I think it's actually really important because if we don't do it, no one will. Mm. That's the reality. Mm. Um, and I also think that across party lines, one of the interesting things out of the last 12 months has been the acceptance that across all parties that we need more women in the, in the parliament, we need to be working together more, and we've kind of, uh, a number of us have kind of put down our bows and arrows and actually started working a bit more uh, closely together, publicly and privately, and I think that is really, really important. Despite all the crap that's happened over the last 12 months in, in Canberra and all of the stories that have come out um, and the treatment that people have gone through, I actually think, I feel quite positive and I feel quite hopeful that in this next term, there is going to be very real advancement for women in politics, but also for what we present to the women of Australia. Um, and it's up to us to do it. And I don't really care what political party we're from. I want us to work together to develop and deliver a proper feminist agenda. Hi, Eva, how are you? Um, look, I, I've never felt compromised on my feminist uh, positions, never felt compromised. I think it's about women supporting each other. The, the most powerful thing that we can do as women is the way in which we network and mentor each other. That's, that's incredibly powerful. Mm. And you should also, uh, I guess many people would understand that just because you're from the Labor Party or the Liberal Party or the Greens are independent doesn't mean that you don't have connections with, with, the, with each other that's across party lines. Yeah. And that's a feature of surviving Parliament in many ways. But the power of collective action is what we have to stick with in terms of women. And that's how you protect your feminism. Collective action, working together um, and also always having in my mind, Eva, and you know me quite well, is that my, the understanding that the, sh that the way in which you uh, hold the positions that we hold is not on your own effort. It's usually on the shoulders of other women. Mm. And that's something you remember. Mm. Yep. And can I? Build on that. Yep. Can I just build on what Linda was saying that I think, um, Again, it comes back to the numbers and equal representation because like my business life, if you have a focus on something, so you if you have 50-50 men and women, for example, in our parliament, then you establish a focus. So, for example, the, the first parliamentary friendship group of women's health, that came from... I, I launched that, but... The reason it got launched was because of the collective power of all the org amazing organisations like Breast Cancer, BCNA and Ovarian OCRF and all those amazing organisations. So that collective power of the community of women is really, really vital. Um, we'll go up to number three. We'll get through the questions as quickly as possible up there. Hi. Thank you, ladies, to everybody. Um, my name's Lysia, and with a number of board members here, um, we run a non-partisan group that helps to inspire and train mm -hmm. more women to move into public office. Um, I am really interested to hear the panellists' view. If you were designing a course 
on how to train more women to move into public office, and let's assume there's a number in the audience that would want to do that in the coming years, what two skills do you think that they should focus on honing in the coming period to, to give them success? Great question. Sarah, do you want to go first? Very, very good question. I think it's hard to choose two, but I think um, one that is very important is knowing when to listen and knowing when to speak. And I don't mean based on what men think. I mean based on listening to your electorate and listening to the people around you, being able to read the room and then have the courage and the ability to stand up and say it. And right now, uh, with everything that's going on in people's view of politics, the public are crying out for politicians who do what they say and say what they do. And I think being able to be very clear about what you believe, but also being able to listen uh, to, to other people and know when to speak up. Um, if you want to, as a woman in politics, you hone that and you'll be long on your way. Joy? The ability to negotiate so much of what we do in Parliament as parliamentarians, as ministers, as shadow ministers, is negotiating outcomes. It's often a compromise and there are negotiating skills that can be learned. So I would encourage that. Also the ability to speak clearly, concisely and to the point. <laughs> uh, Polly Waffle has uh, had its day and people are listening for elo eloquence and clarity and coherence. My one tip would be, if you were going into politics, don't let others define you. Don't let others set benchmarks for you that they can't or won't meet themselves. Be authentic, be yourself, believe in yourself, don't let others tell you what you can or can't do. Yeah. Um, um, the two uh, suggestions that I would make is uh, particularly, and I say this always to young women that I'm speaking to, the most powerful thing you can be is be yourself. Mm. Mm. Don't try and copy someone else. Don't try and be a bloke um, like the blokes. Just be you because you are the most powerful person uh, that you, you can be if you, if, you, um, if you just be yourself. And the second bit of advice is take every opportunity I think as women, as other people have said, we often say I'm not qualified enough or maybe I, I haven't got time or I can't do that. Just grasp everything and have a crack mm. is my advice. Mm. Yeah. Good. Julia? The two, two words that come to mind for me or the two things are authenticity. Be your authentic self. Um, because people see right through a PR campaign or, or um, you know, Vox Pop grabs or anything like that, the six-word slogan, so stay authentic. And uh, the other one is resilience. You really, it's just resilience in leadership um, applies to men and women, and I think you need resilience in politics. And someone gave me a metaphor which I could share with, with many of you. So many women, particularly in public office, um, put up with 
50 times the sort of social media trolling and the comments and all that sort of stuff and treat it as if you're a, a bullfighter and you've got the red flag, red, that colour again, Jules, um, <laughs> you've got the red flag and you just take it away and, and go forward with resilience. Um, I, like, I like that metaphor. <laughs> the matador of, uh, of, yeah. of trolling over here. Yeah. Um, number four. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm just sort of interested as a... A 50-year-old woman who has an interest in politics and has done for many years but is not affiliated with a political party, as to how or, or what suggestions you would have in regards to perhaps taking that next step forward? I think yeah. you have to have something that you feel passionate about and a, a connection as to uh, your community or an issue and surely... I mean, politics is, and Julie said this before, you know, one of the highest callings. Um, but that's because we want to serve our community and we want outcomes. We want to make the place better. It doesn't matter what political party you're in. We all come into politics with the view that we want to make the country better. We've got different ideas about how that happens, but that's why we come to it. And so um, that's what you need to, to know first, is what it, what it is that you want to... Why being in politics, what difference are you going to make? And there will be something, of course. Um, but I think going into politics for politics, you won't last long. You have to have, you have, to have something in your heart uh, and in your gut that drives you. Can I perhaps give you some very pragmatic advice? Write a list. Why do you want to go into politics? Do you want to be in national politics or state politics? Local politics. Or local politics. Do you want to be in the Senate or the House of Representatives? Is there a polit political party whose values and outlooks and ideas align with yours? If there's not, do you want to be an independent? And if so, what are the chances of you getting sufficient support to be it? So you need to ask yourself some pretty searching questions and I suggest write it down, write a list and then evaluate it. Find yourself a mentor, male, female, somebody whose judgment you trust and who looks out for your interests and run these ideas past them. Speak to some people in politics, whether it's local, state or federal, and gain as much information as you can as to whether politics is for you. Linda said it's not for everybody and that's absolutely right. But if you have a passion and energy and can answer those questions, then politics may well be the next career for you. Well, my advice is keep doing what you're doing. Um, if you're interested, if you're passionate, um, you're obviously a good community advocate or you wouldn't, you wouldn't be asking this question. Um, and there are many ways that you can influence the political outcome without being a member of parliament. Uh, there are many opportunities particularly for women within the political spectrum. Um, not many people end up members of parliament, but there are lots of people behind, uh, behind you that do incredibly important jobs, whether it's media or policy or being a member of a local branch of a particular party. They're the sorts of things that I would suggest. Stay an active, um, committed community activist. Um, well, I entered politics at 52, so and uh, and 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 
basically what drove me was all throughout my career, my business career, um, I fought and uh, worked uh, in relation to gender and cultural equalities. That's what I stood for then the, throughout my career and to have that opportunity on the broader platform in that House of Representatives is, was a, a, an extraordinary honour. And so I would say to you, um, if you want to, um, you're clearly in the sensible centre, so become an independent. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're pretty much out of time, but we we'll just take one more question from um, number two down there, and then, yeah. Thank you, Warami. I'm wondering how we make leadership safer for women. So I'm in the final year of my teaching degree and I can't wait to start. I know one day I'd like to serve my school communities as a leader, but I'm conscious that violence towards principals is actually increasing. A recent survey showed that 32% of male principals experienced physical violence last year, but 40% of female principals experienced physical violence last mm. year. And this is across the board in other frontline services too. So how do we make it safer, aside from me teaching the next generation to do better and taking self-defense classes, how do we make it less acceptable for violence towards female leaders to be a thing? I'll have a crack at that. Yeah, yeah. Go in um, it's staggering that there's violence against any. That's a huge statistic. Yeah. But my, um, my suggestion would be, not just for yourself, to, to create a safer place for women's leadership, but one of the things that I think we can do is that's the most empowering thing for ourselves is know how we were made. Know how you were put together. Know where you've come from. Understand, uh, understand your, your family's history. Understand the sorts of things and strengths uh, that you draw from what's made you. Um, and if you do that, if we all do that, and we've all got incredible stories, every single one of us, uh, then uh, that self-empowerment flows out. That, that is a shocking statistic that 32% of male and 40% of female principals are subjected to violence. Any violence against either men or women is utterly unacceptable. And it comes down to taking responsibility for your own actions, individuals, the students, I'm assuming the violence comes from the students, not from... The parents? Parents. From the parents. Mm. Students. Can be students yeah. or parents. Okay. Well, students. school community members. It's utterly unacceptable. And there has to be a culture of respect. And it can be learned, it can be acquired. If it's not innate and ingrained, as one would hope, it can be an issue that has to be put out there in the open the light shone on it and people taking responsibility for their behaviour. I am shocked by those statistics and I, I don't see it through the gender lens, I see it through a lens that there's that level of violence by students or parents against mm. teachers, against principals, whose job it is to nurture and educate their children. Because as a former education minister, I know that the most powerful influence on a child's educational outcomes after parents are, are their teachers, who should be treasured and respected members of our society. Um, we, we might just, just wrap up quickly, I suppose, with a, with a broader point about um, how to withstand um, that kind of, you know, 
violence, abuse, the, the, really, the really heavy stuff that gets thrown at women in leadership positions? Well, I think, you know, more broadly, because those statistics are horrific, but, you know, being a, a, a woman in politics or a woman in public life, um, it's not unusual to receive threats and abuse. It, it just isn't. Mm. Um, and, of course, I think, um, as women, and I've started to do this myself, I've stopped pretending that it doesn't happen. I've stopped pretending that that's just internet trolls. I'm naming it. I'm calling people out. And I think we have to not be the ones who stay silent or are silenced by this type of behaviour. I actually think we have to push back and say, no, it's not on, it's not acceptable, and shame the trolls. <laughs> um, I actually think, I actually think that's, that's kind of a great note to end on because here we are proclaiming it um, you know, on, the, on the stage of the concert hall in the Sydney Opera House. Um, we're coming up to an election year. Um, I, in many ways, feel a little bit pessimistic um, about our political culture, but certainly listening to you ladies today makes me feel more optimistic. And I think there's so much resilience here um, that I think we're, you know... We have only good things to come. Um, I want to thank our female panellists so much. And thank you to the audience. You guys have been great. And yeah. it's such an incredible experience to be here. Julie, I'm just going to give you one more chance to tell us what you're doing now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. Thanks. Good afternoon. Thanks. Thanks, Dad. Thanks. 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 Thanks.